I need to say thank you, not just to Dr. Marriott and his dear wife, but I want to first say thank you to Dr. Marriott and his dear wife. Their hospitality has been outstanding this week, and, uh, and I really count it a profound privilege to have been invited to speak to the Maranatha Baptist University student body for this opening meeting. It uh, is a great privilege, and I appreciate it, appreciate Dr. Davis and the entire administration, uh, great folks. Uh, I love this school. I have three degrees, none of which are from Maranatha Baptist University. But I love this school. I appreciate this school. I agree with this school. I like their direction. I like their emphasis. I like the philosophy here. And I hope you young people appreciate this school as well. I think you made a wise choice in enrolling here at Maranatha Baptist University. And I hope that your time here, if Jesus tarries, will be blessed of God. I asked Dr. Merritt if I could take just a moment before the preaching and give, I guess you could call it a little commercial, and it will be brief, so will the preaching this morning. But uh, when I was a college student, I remember, I think it was my freshman year, it may have been my sophomore year, but a man named Dr. Monroe Parker came and preached in chapel. Dr. Marriott knew Dr. Parker well. He was a great man, a great preacher. At one time, he was the director of the ministerial class at Bob Jones University. At one time, he was the president of Pillsbury Baptist Bible College. He was a longtime director of Baptist World Mission. He was a well-known conference speaker and evangelist, a great preacher. And I looked up to him really as a giant, a Christian giant, a hero of the faith. And when he came to chapel, he talked about when he was a college student during the summers, he traveled and did evangelistic work, sometimes in an old brush arbor, sometimes in local churches, sometimes in a civic auditorium. He preached revival meetings, and he preached hundreds of times and saw many people saved. And I can remember as a college student sitting there listening to him. Now, the call of God was on me. I I was compelled that God wanted me to be a preacher. And because God wanted me to be a preacher, I wanted to preach. And I heard him talk about how when he was a college student, he preached. And I thought, you know, that just wasn't fair. How come when he was 19 years old, when he was 20 years old, he was traveling around the country and he was preaching and uh, and I'm doing all I can like like a dog fighting for a bone trying to find an opportunity to speak in a nursing home. Now, there's nothing wrong with speaking in a nursing home. Sometimes that can be a great, great opportunity to minister. But he talked about preaching revival meetings, preaching to youth, preaching in churches. And I thought, it's just not fair. I wish I I could do that. Well, then came to my school a man named Charles Holmsher. He's the executive director of a ministry called Neighborhood Bible Time. Neighborhood Bible Time conducts youth revival meetings across America. And now Bible Time conducts youth evangelistic meetings in foreign countries. We've been to the Philippines, South Africa. We've been to England, Ireland, Scotland, the countries of the Caribbean. This past summer, we had a young man in the country of Sudan, believe it or not. But Charles Holmsher said that he was looking for young men who would travel and preach. I thought, well, that's what I want to do. And so I enlisted with the Neighborhood Bible Time Ministry And I did exactly that. I preached. That summer in 1984, I know back in the dark ages, the summer of 84, I had rallies in the state of 
Colorado. I preached in Pennsylvania. I preached in Massachusetts. I traveled to the maritime provinces of Canada. And I preached in Nova Scotia. And I preached in New Brunswick. I preached to children. I preached to teenagers. Sometimes I preached to hundreds of teenagers. Some of the pastors that we were serving invited me to preach in Sunday services. And I saw a great many young people saved. I had tremendous experiences. And I remember when I returned to college... I remember Dr. Monroe Parker talking about how when he was a college student, he traveled and he preached and he saw people saved. And I thank God because when I was a college student, I traveled and I preached and I saw people saved. So here's the commercial. If you are a young man and you feel the call of God in your life, maybe you're studying missions, maybe you're studying pastoral studies, maybe you're studying Bible, but you feel as if God may have you to be a preacher I think if God wants you to be a preacher, you ought to preach. And no, you should not wait until you get your Master of Divinity degree to preach. You ought to be preaching right now. And there's an opportunity, it still exists. Next month, a man named Larry Kuntz is going to visit the campus of Maranatha Baptist University. And if you are a preacher and you want to preach, there's an opportunity for you. I encourage you to go and talk to Larry Kuntz. Let's take our Bibles, please. And open them to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. I read somewhere on the internet a profound quote from the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Anytime Lincoln said something, certainly worth paying attention to. There was a picture of Lincoln. There were quotations that said, Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's good wisdom from our 16th president. I don't, I don't know. I think this is true. I, I, somebody told me about this, and I checked it out. And, of course, there's no, there's no way to know for sure anymore when you read something on a news site, whether it's exactly reliable. But this comes from abcnews.com. Here's the headline. New York mom fired after donating kidney to help boss. Subtitle, a New York, Long Island woman, Debbie Stevens, 47, mother of two, said she was fired after she donated a kidney to help save the life of her boss. Apparently, her boss thought that she spent too much time in recovery from her surgery donating her kidney, so she was discharged from her job. I'll let you just digest that for a minute. Of course, the response is, if that's, if that's true, that's outrageous. I mean, how, how is it possible that anybody could be so ungrateful to somebody else who did something so significant, who made such a profound sacrifice for them? You'd think that they would want to answer their generosity and their sacrifice with love and appreciation and loyalty and devotion. And you would be right. The child of God, know this. Nobody has ever made a sacrifice for you or ever will that can possibly compare in the slightest bit to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on Calvary's cross. And the appropriate response for you and the appropriate response for me to what Jesus did for me when he bore my sins and carried my sorrows is to love him and to trust him 
and to live in complete appreciation, gratitude, and devotion to him who gave his life a ransom, not just for many, but for you. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And while he died for the sins of the world, child of God, make it personal. It is personal. He died for the sins of the world. He died for you. When I was in high school, I heard a preacher preach from our text, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And it impressed, it was so impressed me that I, that I put this verse to memory. Romans 12 verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I beseech you, therefore. Now that kind of phraseology isn't common today. We don't usually use the word beseech. But it does not mean command. I don't order you, Paul says. I beseech you. And it means far more than asking. It means urging. It means I plead with you. I don't think that it would be inappropriate. I don't think it would be inaccurate to say it means I beg you. Here the Bible says I urge you. I plead with you. I beg you. This is something earnest. Young people, our devotion to Christ ought to be something that's earnest. It's significant. It's important. And so this morning I beseech you. I plead with you. I, I urge you, therefore, brethren. And notice, therefore. Because of all that's gone before, you're students of the Bible, you know that the book of Romans is the most complete exposition in the entire New Testament about the doctrine of salvation. We open up the book of Romans, and after a few introductory verses, the Apostle Paul begins to talk about the fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and sin. And the book of Romans shows categorically and convincingly, compellingly, that all of the world is under the wrath of God because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God but that God has provided salvation in the person of His Son. And that through simple faith in Him, we are now justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Romans talk about justification. Justification is a theological term, but is a rich word and a wonderful word and a meaningful word that has eternal significance. Justification means that God has declared you just. He is just and the justifier of them that believe in Christ. He has taken away the blame, the guilt of your sin. Jesus Christ took it and bore it himself on Calvary's cross. But justification means more than that. As wonderful as that is, as incomprehensible as that is, not only has God, in declaring you just, taken away the blame and the guilt of wrongdoing and sin, He has imputed, He has ascribed, He has credited to you the righteousness of Christ. So that now in Jesus we have been made accepted in the Beloved One. 
He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Robed in the righteousness of Christ, God of eternity now looks at you if Jesus is your Savior, not only as a guilt free individual no longer to blame for your sin and wrongdoing but he sees you as having the very goodness the very righteousness of his own dear son what a standing we have in christ what a position what a privilege what eternal riches are ours in our union with the son of god i beseech you therefore brethren justification Chapter 6 talks about sanctification. Chapter 8 talks about the fact that we can call out, Abba, Father, we have a marvelous relationship now with God. What a thing that is. John the Apostle said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Behold. Take time to look at this and to consider this and ponder this. The truth is the blessings of salvation are manifold. I wouldn't say anything to minimize what I just talked about, justification. As rich and wonderful and significant as that is, as magnificent as the truth of justification is, salvation is more than that. Salvation is regeneration. Salvation is adoption. Paul here writes to people he calls brethren. These are not people who have the same parentage he has. In fact, these are people, generally speaking, as Paul writes this letter under the inspiration of God, who come from a completely different racial background. He was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. These people were Gentiles. But they're brothers, they're sisters, they're family members. They're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When I was in college, one of the blessings of being in a Christian college, and let me encourage you to do this, is when you meet other young people, maybe young people from different places, maybe young people from different cultures, talk to them about how they came to know Christ. Maybe they grew up in a Christian home, maybe they were saved later in life, but it's wonderful to hear about the grace of God in other people's lives. I had a classmate when I was in college, and he became a Christian because he was adopted into a Christian family, and that's how he became exposed to the gospel. I say adopted. He lived in an orphanage. Not a foster home, but a larger home. It was filled with children. And he said his dream in life was one day to have a mom and a dad and a family of his own. But he said folks would come to the orphanage, and it was always the little babies. It was always the little infants that the the moms and the dads wanted, and babies would come and babies would go. But he was seven years old and then eight years old and nine, and it didn't seem like anybody wanted to adopt a little boy like him. But that was his dream, that was his hope. Maybe someday he'd have a mom and a dad and a family of his own. Then came a day, and I remember the first time this friend of mine told me this story. Tears, warm tears were running down his cheeks. He was a tough college student crying was kind of undignified but he couldn't contain his emotion the greatest day of my life he said i got called to the administrator's office and there in the administrator's office was this nice man in a coat and a tie and this pretty lady wearing a dress 
And the administrator introduced me to Mr. and Mrs. Baker. He said, they want to be your mom and dad. They want to adopt you. They want you to be part of their family. And again, he said, it was the greatest day of my life. God adopts orphans. We can call God our Heavenly Father because Jesus Christ made it possible for us to be welcomed into the family of God. What a profound privilege it is to be not just saved. I say just. Being saved is not insignificant. Being justified is not insignificant. But behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Paul, here under the inspiration of God, is writing to the family of God, to the children of God. He's writing to you, if you know Christ as Savior. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of all that has gone before in the book of Romans and because of all that God has done, because God spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our life, because He has given us the adoption of sons, because of heaven being our home and our name being written in the Lamb's book of life, because of our sins being expunged, being forgiven by the blood of the cross, because of all that God in His mercy has bestowed upon us. I beseech you. I urge you. I plead with you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That you present your bodies. The word present there means yield. We talked about this a little earlier in the week. If you've got your driver's license, I hope you know what it means to yield. It means to surrender the right of way. It's to give somebody else the privilege of passage. And so here the Bible tells us, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the grace of God, because of the mercy of God, I urge you, I plead with you, surrender, yield to God the right of passage in your life. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Of course, this harkens back to the Old Testament economy when Animal sacrifices were brought to the temple, brought to the tabernacle. Then they were slain, the blood was shed, the bodies were burned, and the smoke went up. It's a sweet incense to God. God does not ask for any more sacrifices. Not that kind. Jesus Christ, of course, was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. But God does ask for us to serve. As high priests, the Bible tells us that we are to to do good and to communicate, Romans chapter 13, that we're to offer unto God the sacrifice of praise. We're a nation of priests. If you're a child of God, you're a priest before God. You mediate between God and men. You pray for others. You offer sacrifices to God. We don't offer propitiatory sacrifices. We don't offer blood sacrifices. Jesus did that on Calvary, and there's no more blood sacrifice, no atoning sacrifice necessary. Jesus paid it all. 
But as a kingdom of priests, we still offer up sacrifices, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of service, the sacrifice of giving. Here in Romans chapter 12, the sacrifice of self. I urge you, I plead with you, present your body, a living sacrifice, your life. You know, it's hard to be separated from your body. When you're separated from your body, you're dead. As long as you're in this world, we live in this, in this tabernacle, in this tent, in this shell. And my body and my personality, my body and my values, they really can't be divorced. What do you mean? I mean, I say what I say because I think what I think, right? Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaketh. I do what I do because of my will, because of my decisions, because of my choices. I go where I go because of who I am, what I am. I see what I see. These are my choices. These are my decisions. So all of the activities, all of the performances of the body are a reflection of the heart. Child of God, yield your body a living sacrifice unto God. Take your eyes and lay them on the altar and say, God, I give my eyes to you. I will not set any wicked thing before my eyes. I'll let my eyes look right on. Lord, my eyes don't belong to me anymore. Jesus died for me. Jesus purchased me. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I will only look at what you want me to see. God, I give my mouth to you. I will let by thy grace my speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. By the grace of God, I will let no corrupt communication proceed out of my mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. God, I give my mouth to you. I'm going to only say those things that honor you. I'm only going to speak those things that please you. God, I yield, I surrender, I give, I dedicate my mouth to you. These hands are yours, O God. I give them to you. They'll do the things you want them to do. I surrender them to you. I yield them to you. I present them to you. These are now your hands, oh God. These hands will do your service so long as I live. My legs, my feet, they'll carry me where you want me to go. Lord, if you want me to stay, I stay. If you want me to go, I go. If you want me to go to a distant place, that's where I'll be. If you want me to go to a difficult and and different place, that's where I'll be. God, I give myself All of me, every part of me, I yield and surrender to you completely. This is your reasonable service. It's logical. It's a choice that you make. And it's a choice that every child of God ought to make. I'm not talking about some post-salvation sanctification experience where you feel a an electrical charge, or speak in some unknown tongue. But I believe that every Christian who's born again, every child of God who's been adopted into the family of God, you need to present your body, you need to surrender yourself, you need to yield yourself completely and without reservation to God because of His mercy and because of His love. There are some students sitting here this morning, and you say, well, I'm here at Maranatha Baptist University because I'm dedicated to the Lord. Are you entirely dedicated to the Lord? Or is is there that corner of your life, that pocket of your life, that particular area of your life that you've kind of kept back for yourself? 
Nothing wrong with dating girls. I dated one. I enjoyed dating her so much that we've been dating now for 34 years. But you know, it might be, young man, it might be, young lady, that you're in a relationship that doesn't please the Lord. And if you're a child of God and a priest of God and you're dedicated to God, it matters. And if he doesn't want you in that relationship, yeah, but, but she's sweet. Yes, but he's charming. Yes, I like them so. Listen, you need to like Jesus more. And if he wants a change in that relationship, whatever he wants, whatever he wants. Maybe your major here at MBU needs to change. Sometimes, young people, we talked about this yesterday, we make decisions based on, based on money. Again, I'm not talking about any particular major. I believe there are godly Christian businessmen and godly Christian medical professionals and godly Christian educators and godly Christian ministers, obviously. Godly Christians are just about any and every profession. I think you could serve the Lord there, but it might be, it might just be that you're studying education and God has something else for you. But I want to be an educator. I want to be in business. And maybe God wants you to be in the pulpit. Lord, what do you want? What do you want? I, I mean this, Brother Marion, I've, I've never told this publicly in my life. I, I don't believe I've ever said this to my church. I had a grandfather who was a businessman. And I went to college. He didn't want me to go where I went to college. He wanted me to be a businessman like himself. I went to seminary, and then when I graduated seminary, I became a youth pastor. And he came to me. I was probably at that church two, three days. My grandfather came to me, and he said, listen. He said, I don't know what they're paying you. But he said this, and I don't mean to be irreverent, and I love and honor my grandfather's memory, but he said, if you can sell God, you can sell anything. I want you to come and work for me, and whatever they're paying you, I'll double it. And I was a youth pastor in an independent Baptist church. If he'd have known, he wouldn't have doubled it. He'd have tripled it. (laughs) But I thanked him, and I thanked him in the sense that, that I knew that my grandfather loved me. But I told him, I said, this is what God wants me to do. And it's not about money. You know, people, it's not about money. It's about God. And there are people in the will of God who become fantastically rich. And there are people in the will of God who are fantastically poor. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Just yield yourself and surrender to his will and give yourself in total devotion and dedication to God. It's not about money. It's not about popularity. It's not about me. I'm bought with a price. Jesus died for me. And the answer of my heart and the answer of my mind and the answer of my will ought to be, it can only be, Lord, where you want me, I'll be there. What you want me to do, I'll do it. God, what you want me to say, I'll say it. I I present my body to you, a living sacrifice. This is my determination. This, This is my dedication. Several years ago, my wife and I visited Charleston, South Carolina. While we were there, we 
We visited Fort Sumter. I enjoy history. There's a lot of history there in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina, now it's a museum. They still have the old slave market. Charleston was a center for the importation of human chattel, human beings from Africa to be sold as slaves before the Civil War, before the Emancipation Proclamation. The story goes that on one occasion there was a young lady who was put up for sale there at the slave market. She was a very willful and a very stubborn woman. She did not want to be a slave. She wanted to be free. And as she was brought up in chains onto the platform, the auctioneer told the crowd, here's a young woman and she's got high energy, she's got good health. They treated her in a most undignified manner, the way they treated all the slaves, pulling up her lips so they could see that her teeth were whole, poking and prodding her as if she were cattle. And as the auctioneer was talking about her, her hands in shackles, she looked out with anger and resentment at the crowd of men that were there bidding to purchase human beings as slaves, and she clenched her teeth, and she said, I'll not serve you. I don't want to be a slave. I'll not serve any of you. And the auctioneer said, you could see she's spirited. She'll work hard. And there came a bid from the left side, and then another bid higher from the right side. And each time a bid was called out, she'd cry out to the man that was bidding, I'll not serve you! I'll not serve you! Quiet, the auctioneer said. He struck her with a rod. Then came another bid and another, and she still cried out, I want to be free! I'll not be a slave! I'll not serve you! Finally, from the back came a bid that was so high that nobody else could beat it. The auctioneer said, going once, going twice, and he banged his gavel, sold. The man made his way to the front. Tears of anger streaming down her cheeks. A woman looked at the man that just purchased her as a slave, shook her head and said, I'll not serve you. I'll not do that. I want to be free. He took the certificate of ownership. He took the chains and he pulled her through the crowd to the back, down the block, where no one else was. He took her by the waist and he lifted her into the back of the buckboard wagon he was driving. And she looked at the man and she told him of her hate. I'll not serve you. I want to be free. And he handed her the certificate of ownership. And he took the key and he turned the lock and he pulled the chains off of her wrists. And he leaned close to her. He said, you don't understand. He said, I'm an abolitionist. I've come from the north. And I only had enough to buy one today. But I bought you today to set you free. Then came more tears. Oh, sir, she said as she looked at her wrists no longer wrapped in chains. Oh, sir, thank you. I'll serve you till I die. Jesus Christ has set you free from the penalty of sin. Answer his love and his sacrifice and serve him till you die. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ.
Thank you for his love. Thank you for what you've given us and what you've made us in Jesus. I pray for your gracious working in the hearts of each of these young people. And may they examine themselves and consider you and your mercy. And I pray for each one of them that they would be fully, wholly, totally, without reservation, dedicated to the one who gave himself for them. Thank you for Jesus Christ. May our lives say thank you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.